Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, January the 14th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in now, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report, and uh, we'll have dispatches on the tributes from the African National Congress of South Africa upon the death of former parliamentary speaker Dr. Freddy Janwala. A government minister has been arrested in the South American state of Brazil in connection with the attempted right-wing coup one week ago. The opposition forces in the West African state of Benin have questioned the veracity of the recently held parliamentary elections. And the Somalian government is calling for an intensified effort to defeat the rebel group al-Shabaab. In the second hour, we look in detail at the lifetimes and contributions of ANC stalwart Dr. Freni Jamwala. The 94th birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is being commemorated this weekend in the United States. We listened to his historic address in Detroit on June 23rd of 1963, where an earlier iteration of the I Have a Dream speech was delivered. In addition, we'll review the efforts of Dr. King in Chicago during 1966, among other uh, contributions. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. We'd like for everybody to stay tuned. Uh, of course, uh, this weekend um, is uh, in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a federal holiday in the United States. And uh, in the city of Detroit, uh, just coming Monday, uh, January the 16th, beginning at noon, uh, there will be the 20th uh, annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rally in March, uh, which is held uh, at the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Church, uh, located at 8850 Wood Avenue uh, near Holbrook. And uh, anyone in the Detroit area, uh, southern Ontario, northern Ohio, are more than welcome uh, to celebrate uh, this awesome, awesome event uh, which has been taking place in the city of Detroit uh, since uh, the early 2000s. uh, 2004 uh, was the uh, first uh, of course, of these uh, events. And uh, right now we want to move into our musical interlude, and uh, we'll hear music uh, from uh, the East African state of Kenya. And uh, this is music from the Shabbati Jazz. Let's listen in. Mane, 
Kadiana, we go. I never worry about Kadiana. We came to go. Jenny Mutamu, we were do. Takinada. Amigo Mendo Pesa. in downtown Detroit, and uh, we're going to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Chief Justice Raymond Zondo joined many voices in paying tribute to the late former Speaker of Parliament, Freni Janwala. Zondo said the best way to honor Janwala would be uh, to protect the constitutional democracy that she and others, struggle heroes, fought so hard for. Janwala was the first speaker of the country's Democratic Parliament and passed away on Thursday, uh, two weeks after suffering a stroke. She was 90 years old. Sondo said during Janwala's term as speaker, Parliament repealed many apartheid-era laws that discriminated against the country's African majority, including passing the Constitution, which contained the Bill of Rights and provided for an independent judiciary and constituted South Africa as a democratic state. Zondo uh, added that the struggle icon made many contributions in different capacities to the country's constitutional democracy. He said the country would forever be indebted to Janwala and other icons who relentlessly fought to attain freedom and democracy, as well as the leadership they provided as the country's transition into a new dispensation. The presidency said details of an official memorial event for Janwala would be announced in due course. In the South American state of Brazil, a former minister under defeated Brazilian ex-president Jair Bolsonaro was arrested early this morning. Local media has reported in connection with last week's sacking of government buildings, Anderson Torres, Bolsonaro's last justice minister, was arrested when he arrived in the capital, Brasilia, from uh, the United States, uh, where both he and his former boss were at the time of the insurrection. Thousands of Bolsonaroistas invaded the seats of government in the capital 
a week ago, uh, breaking windows and furniture, destroying priceless works of art, and leaving graffiti messages calling for a military coup. More than 2,000 rioters were detained after the events, for which the full extent of the damage is still being calculated. A Supreme Court judge uh, announced uh, yesterday that Bolsonaro would be included in an investigation into the origins of the sacking, which was sparked uh, by anger at the far-right leader's election's defeat uh, to uh, President Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. Torres uh, was warned under a Supreme Court warrant for alleged collusion with the rioters and stands accused of omission in his most recent job as security chief for the Capitol. The new Justice Minister Flavio Dino said yesterday that the authorities would give his predecessor until Monday to return to Brazil or face extradition. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Benin, uh, the main opposition two days ago rejected the results of this week's parliamentary election. Claiming votes, uh, buying, and fraud allowed allies of President Patrice Talon to win a majority of legislature seats. Sunday's vote uh, was a key test for Benin, where Talon uh, has prompted a program of economic and political development, but critics uh, say his mandate has eroded a once-thriving multi-party democracy, pro-Talon Republican bloc and Progressive Union for Renewal Parties, together won 81 seats in the 109-member parliament with opposition Democrats gaining 28 seats, according to preliminary results on Wednesday. In an early Thursday press conference, Democrats' party leader Eric Mundetti uh, announced flagrant ballot box stuffings, riggings, and vote buying by the two pro-government parties without providing immediate evidence. The Democrats' party rejects this result, which does not reflect the will of the people and make our party the first political force in our country, uh, whom Dede said the count attributed to the Siamese parties, the two pro-Talon parties, could only be achieved thanks to the schemes put in place to distort the Democratic game. The election marked the return of the opposition to parliament in the West African nation, following a four-year absence and for the first time since Talon came to power in 2016. And uh, finally, in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, the President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud called uh, two days ago on ordinary people to help flush out members of the Al-Shabaab jihadist group he described as bedbugs. Mohamud was addressing large crowds at a government-organized rally against the Al-Qaeda-linked militants held at a stadium in the capital of Mogadishu under tight security. I'm calling to you, the people of Mogadishu, the Karajites, the renegades are amongst you. So flush them out. They are in your houses. They are your neighbors. In cars that pass you by, he said, I want us to commit today to flushing them out. They are like bed bugs under our clothes. He added, as demonstrators wave flags and placards with anti-Al-Shabaab messages, Al-Shabaab has been waging a bloody insurrection against the frail and internationally backed central government uh, for the last decade and a half, carrying out attacks both in Somalia and neighboring countries, which sent troops to help in the fight against the militants. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, concluding 
this segment of our program. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is a international electronic press service that is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you would like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this worldwide radio broadcast, uh, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Never liked nobody that's been mean to me. I've got a heart full of stone, and I hate the misery. The new came along into my life, destroying me more, mounting up the toil and strife. But I'm a fool. I'm a fool for you. I'm a fool for you. I'm a fool for you. Guess I'll always be, and I claim it famously, cause I'm a fool for you. It's a doggone shame. I don't know why I love you like I do When you're breaking my heart And you know it's true But I'm a fool for you I'm a fool for you I'm a fool for you I'm a fool I'm a fool for you. 
welcome back. That was the impressions uh, with the track entitled Food for You uh, from uh, 19. And uh, as we mentioned in the Pan-African Newswire segment, Dr. Frenny Jamwala, uh, the former Speaker of Parliament in the first ANC-dominated uh, Democratic Parliament in the Republic of South Africa that took over in 1994, has passed away. Uh, and uh, we're going to uh, bring you a statement uh, from uh, the African National Congress Secretary General, Fikile Umbalala, and uh, he is uh, going to uh, speak. Um, he had gone to visit the family of uh, Freni Jinwala. Let's listen to uh, Fakili Mbalula. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, this afternoon. The ANC dips its revolutionary banner as it mourns the passing of a great leader, an architect of our democratic, non-racial, and non-sexist South Africa. The National Executive Committee of the African National Congress extends its heartfelt condolences to the family, loved ones, and comrades of Comrade Frini Jinwala. Dr. Frini Jinwala was a member of the African National Congress since the 1950s, serving on its National Executive Committee, heading its research department and later its archives committee. Comrade Freni served the people in many capacities. In the ANC underground in the 1950s, working with the Indian Congresses and as a student arranging for escape of Comrade President O.R. Tambo into exile. She followed into exile shortly thereafter and served in many capacities, including as managing editor of Tanzanian main English language daily and Sunday papers, the Standard and the Sunday News in 1969. A commitment to the emancipation, uh, to the emancipation as an activist and intellectual was unparalleled. With an iconic article on women in the ANC 1912 to 1943, published in 1990, which dispelled myths about women's role in the struggle. She was a founder and the national convener of the Women's National Coalition, which mobilized uh, women across political lines and sectors to participate in the country's negotiations in the early 1990s. Drafting the second Women's Charter and successfully saw the inclusion of, non of the non-sexism and equality clause of the country's constitution. Between 1990 and 1992, she also served in the ANC Commission on Gender Equality and was part of the National Task Force to relaunch the ANC Women's League. As an ANC Member of Parliament, she became the first Speaker of non-racial Parliament and laid the foundations not only for the legislative arm of government, but for the human rights, constitutional and democratic ethos of our country. 
Comrade Frini Chinwala passed on at the age of 90, of, of 90 years and will be rem remembered as a revolutionary activist who throughout her life uh, fought for freedom, justice and equality. Ambagathe Comrade uh, Frini, the African National Congress wishes to pass our condolences to the family and uh, we came here today uh, to meet with the family and they were appraised by the family about uh, the preparations of uh, the final um, um, journey of Comrade Frini. There will be a private ceremony tomorrow uh, for crematorium, and then uh, it will be followed by a service, uh, official service, uh, obviously led by government, and the ANC officials uh, will meet on Sunday in our regular meeting and part of uh, uh, items on the agenda will reflect on how we want to celebrate the life uh, of uh, Comrade uh, Frini. It was a life well lived and uh, it needs to be celebrated because there's a lot that we, the current generation, at the helm of the movement and society at large, we can learn from the life and times of Comrade Frini. We still have our stalwarts, our veterans in the African National Congress who are there to tell the story. And they also tell uh, about the life and times of uh, Comrade Fredin Chinwala. So we will make further uh, announcement on Monday after consultation as well with the family because uh, once the officials reflect and uh, agree on what needs to happen going forward, We'll still have to come back to the family and then concretize the plans. But we are grateful uh, to the family, uh, the nephew, and uh, uh, the members of the family who are here, and friends and comrades in the family, and those who worked with Comrade Frini here in the family, who have welcomed us with open heart and have said that uh, we shared her with you. Uh, and uh, uh, that was a touching story. And... Uh, uh, we will always take the cue from the family uh, and from now on we'll issue the statement and we'll brief the media working with the family about uh, important developments going forward. But we're looking forward to celebrating a life uh, with the stalwarts of the movement, those who are around, who are still around, with the ANC, obviously, officially with our national government. Uh, also leading from uh, the front in this instance. We've got to, uh, um, uh, you know, compare notes and consolidate uh, our efforts. But we're very much grateful, and also to the media, for a, for a good coverage in terms of praising the life and times of Comrade Frini uh, Chinoala, and also giving us space uh, and giving the family space as well uh, with, in a dignified way uh, to observe this moment that has befallen us. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, you want to say... Uh, pronounce your name so we don't get it correct. I'm, I'm Zavare Rastamji. I'm the nephew of Reni Jinwala. And on behalf of the family, uh, I would like to thank the Secretary General for the message of condolence from the movement that uh, my aunt served. Uh, it's a sad day for the family. It's a sad day for our country. But as was said uh, we should be celebrating her life. Uh, they don't make them like, like they used to, uh, but uh, 
We we grateful for the for the condolences. Um, we uh, um, we had to sh share her with. She had two families, uh, our family and the movement, uh, and it was uh, it was an exciting but also a sometimes a difficult time to try to to manage. She was very kind and caring to us as as as, our, as we grew up, um, and uh, we are very honored uh, and proud of the contribution that she's made. Uh, um, so thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that and uh, thank you for, for, for being here. No, thank you very much. I think what, when, what the SG said as it relates to the tributes, SG, just to amplify the point that what we'll be doing from uh, this coming week, once officials are done, we'll be doing a lineup of former speakers, some veterans that served with her, including younger ones that would have been inspired by her life to tell the story. We'll also be putting in the condolence book, one from the side of government and the other one from Lituli House. For people, those that are coming to convey their condolences to sign that, we'll dedicate ANC Today next week's edition to honor Mam Frenijinwala. So there's going to be a number of activities directed by the SGO. We will be able to issue that program on what will be happening. So just felt as you must also just uh, make the media aware. So as they call, they know that we are also working on a program to guide this process. Thank you very much. Welcome back. And that was a uh, briefing uh, at the home of Frene Jamwala by uh, African National Congress uh, Secretary General Bikile M. Balula. Uh, let's listen uh, to another uh, comrade of Frene uh, Janwala, and that was uh, Mac Maharaj. Uh, let's listen in. Founding Speaker of South Africa's Democratic Parliament, Dr. Frene Janwala, has died at the age of 90. She passed away at her home last night following a stroke two weeks ago. President Ramaphosa has extended his condolences uh, to Dr. Jinwala's family, friends and colleagues. She was active in the anti-apartheid movement and worked as a lawyer, academic, political leader, activist and journalist. In 2005, Dr. Jinwala was honoured with the Order of Latulia in Silver. She will be buried in a private funeral as per her family's wishes. All right, uh, let's bring you some tribute tonight. Uh, we're joined by Mac Maharaj, uh, Dr. Maharaj, former cabinet minister and struggle stalwart. Thank you for, for being with us. Um, uh, do you believe that she really um, gave that gravitas, uh, gave that, that role um, to, to speaker in, in the beginning? Um, and of course, you can pay your personal tribute. The parliament of democratic South Africa, which assembled in 1994, was a completely new phenomenon in our country. It was made up of people from diverse walks of life, black, white, whatever hue, men, women, and they came from every walk of life. There were members who had been domestic workers, members who had been factory workers, miners, teachers, doctors, lawyers, you name it. And Trini Jinwala was charged with the task of shaping the custom traditions 
and the manner in which that parliament was to operate. Comrade Mandela had occasion as president to remind us in parliament that we were representatives of the people and that we had a solemn duty to attend to our work with punctuality and to engage in debates with respect for each other so that the dignity of this institution was maintained and enhanced. That task fell to Frenny Jinwala. It was no easy task. It was a parliament made up of a multiplicity of political parties representing diverse and often conflicting interests. And Frenny attended to it meticulously, learning, studying how other parliaments operated, but learning how to adapt those to the South African situation. She did that not just by imposing a heavy hand of discipline, but with a sense of humor that here we were building a new institution and learning our way forward. She succeeded in that task because she remained speaker for two terms. And when I look back, I realize how much we owe the positive sides of our parliament to the stewardship of Comrade Freni Jinwala. I remember how, as a person of a multiplicity of talents, she could not be put into a single box and say, this is what makes Freni. Freni was an activist, a journalist. She had been the foreign editor of Africa South, which subsequently was banned. When Tanzania became independent, she went to Dar es Salaam and opened a newspaper called The Spearhead. She was later deported from independent Tanzania. And then a few years later, President Nyerere intervened and invited her back and revoked the deportation. They invited her then to take charge of being the managing editor of the daily English newspaper in Dar es Salaam called The Standard. She was a lecturer. She participated in uh, producing programs for the BBC. She went around the world promoting the cause of anti-apartheid. She headed the research team of the ANC in London for a few years before she relinquished that post to Comrade Paolo Jordan. But at all times, she remained active in the office of the president, president, the late president, Oliver Tambo. So she also, in the post-90 era, returned to South Africa, played her part in CODESA and the multi-party negotiations. Her handprints are to be found on the interim constitution. And she helped to develop the charter of the Coalition of Women. That charter was produced in 1994. Rennie then served as a speaker, as I say, until 2004. And after that, she spent the rest of her life promoting democracy and social justice, not just in South Africa, but across the world. That's Rennie, who can never be put in a box, and who I believe with other veterans, that her accomplishments and her formidable contribution should be shouted out from the rooftops so that we all learn from it how to be servants of the people. Mr. Maharaj, thank you uh, very much and thank you for giving us that sweep of history, highlighting how important she was in the exile period in holding um, the reputation of the ANC and uh, spreading the word of, of the struggle, particularly in the UK and elsewhere. That was Mac Maharaj, former cabinet minister and struggle stalwart. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Mac uh, Maharaj, uh, longtime veteran 
a revolutionary uh, activist and organizer for the African National Congress. And uh, we want to hear now from um, Dr. Geraldine Fraser Mukaletti. And um, she, uh, of course, uh, is going to talk about uh, Fanny Jamalo's contribution to the women's movement uh, in South Africa. We continue with tribute. Geraldine Fraser Mulaketi is a former minister and a member of parliament, of course. Uh, Ms. Fraser Mulaketi, thank you uh, for being with us at this very sad time. Uh, so many things have been repeated, uh, dignity, uh, but also her power as a gender activist. And she was a very prominent woman in, in that role early on, and many women have followed. I'd love to know if she inspired you. Um, thank you very much, uh, Francis, for this opportunity. I'd like to join those who clearly reflect on the fact that this is quite a solemn moment, much as we are to celebrate Comrade Fanny's life. Gender activist, yes, she, as pointed out by the Secretary General of the ANC, um, in this history of the movement and her involvement in the movement, she very clearly ensured that the whole issue of gender equality and the role of women in all sectors of society, that that should come through. And Comrade Freni was quite relentless on this. She made sure that the ANC dealt with this in a serious way. And she was, uh, as was mentioned, the f one of the founder of the National Women's Coalition. She was also responsible for the formulation of the Women's Charter that in turn informed the Constitution that we have today. And there's no question that it's far-reaching. But I wanted to raise one additional point of her as a speaker and I want to use her words in this uh, respect. She was asked about, uh, you know, coming into this position and she said, and I quote, I had not wanted to be speaker, but it was very much, he's referring to President Mandela, Madiba, his decision, and he had to persuade leadership about it. I wanted to go to parliament, but I wanted to write and speak and be a member. Anyway, I found myself as a speaker. Madiba had tremendous respect for Parliament. He thought it was very important and he said to me, and I quote, she quoted him, you must run Parliament in a way that carries on what we have done in the negotiations, where we've tried to bring all parties on board. We've tried to involve everybody so that we take the whole of South Africa into this new arrangement, close quote. It sounded great in theory, but I didn't know what to do because I had no experience in Parliament before then. I had a proposal, but I wasn't sure I'd get it through the ANC. I wanted to put minority parties um, on the front bench. I said to him, Parliament is televised and people will watch it. And they can see their leaders sitting in Parliament and there'll be identification. So he said, yes, it's a good idea. And so it goes on. And this is about Comrade Freni. Once she had that thought, she was persistent. She also was a member of the Govern Governance and Legislature Committee of the ANC. And I served in that committee 
with that. As a matter of fact, um, uh, uh, I and Cindy Mufamadi were co-conveners at the time. And just as she uh, was resilient in pushing the gender agenda forward, she was also quite, uh, uh, you know, persistent in ensuring that we dealt with issues on how we would transform Parliament. And she ensured that she understood uh, the rules, engaged with people, listened to them, and took things forward with uh, the touch of Comrade Freni. You couldn't push back once uh, uh, she was persistent in her argument. And then a last thing, which is a bit more personal about her, and this was in Parliament. She was a collector of old maps, ancient maps, and she had put up some of that collection in her office. And this also reflected on the way in which she saw the world, because those maps also had a different approach on what was seen as the geo political center at the point. I mean, of course, it was dismissed, uh, some of those maps, but there were many others that may actually reflect on where we see a future geopolitical reality. Um, and uh, finally, we've heard the point around uh, um, her focus on uh, um, research and uh, the work she's done, working very closely with President O.R. and others. I mean, Comrade Freni was passionate about the archives of the ANC and always felt that this was something that must be treasured, that we should ensure that history is told in the way in which it unfolded, and that this had to be informed by the evidence that's there. And in addition to that, she always ensured that she involved women, even if there may have been differences on that, bringing them to the center, ensuring that they were able to participate. So I'll conclude by saying, look at the Women's Charter, its existence in our Constitution, look at what... Uh, the first democratic parliament evolved into, look at the power of the first woman speaker of that parliament. Look at the future of the non-racial, non-sexist South Africa. We're not fully there yet. We still have to be there. And that's why we celebrate Comrade Freni through saying, let's carry the flag. Let's, as was said in the past, let's pick up the, the baton, take that baton forward and in her words ensure that we reflect this country to be what the Freedom Charter envisaged and what the Women's Charter through the involvement of all women from different sectors of society in South Africa and also, um, I said I was concluding, but I must say, she was part of the leadership of the delegation to Beijing. There was a, a delegation that was led by the then Minister of Health, Nkosazana Zamili Zuma, 
I was the deputy leader of that delegation. Comrade Sreni, as Speaker of Parliament, was a prominent member of that delegation together with uh, other members of government as well as Parliament and this involved uh, opposition parties as well and civil society because we saw ourselves as constituting a country delegation and Comrade Sreni was the one would listen with patience and only comment at the end and especially when we dealt with difficult debates and negotiations around the Beijing platform of action. She's amongst those who should be counted as having carried that flag of South Africa as that first woman speaker as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Geraldine Fraser-Malachetti, former Minister and Member of Parliament, and we really appreciate your time and uh, what beautiful personal anecdotes, including the, the story about uh, the maps in the office of Dr. Freni Jinwala. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Geraldine uh, Fraser-Malachetti uh, uh, speaking about... Um, the late uh, Dr. Frenny Chinwala, uh, who passed away uh, just two days ago in the Republic of South Africa, uh, Dr. Jenny, Dr. Chinwala, of course, uh, was a former Speaker of Parliament for two terms in uh, the Republic of South Africa, the first uh, democratic uh, parliament controlled uh, by uh, the African National Congress. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, today is Saturday, January the 14th, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to uh, the Pan-African Journal for this week. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Sound of the uh, flirtations, uh, nothing but a heartache every day. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, we're going to move into our MLK uh, tribute this weekend. Uh, the 94th uh, anniversary of the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is being celebrated throughout the United States. Here in the city of Detroit on Monday, January 16th at noon, uh, there will be the 20th annual uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rally in March. It begins at the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Episcopal Church at 8850 Woodward Avenue at the Holbrook at noon, and there will be a rally uh, featuring numerous artists and political activists in the city of Detroit. At uh, 1.30, uh, the march uh, will take place uh, down Woodward Avenue to the newly under construction uh, food co-op at Woodward and Euclid. Uh, then we march back to the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Church on Woodward Avenue, and then uh, there will be a community meal served outside the church. And uh, we're going to listen to uh, the speech delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Detroit at Cobo Arena on June uh, the 23rd of 1963. And uh, this speech uh, has been labeled, I Have a Dream. Uh, it was delivered some two months prior to the Washington, D.C. March on Washington version of I Have a Dream. This speech is longer. It is more substantive. It is more comprehensive and it is more militant than what was delivered uh, at uh, the mall in uh, Washington, D.C. some two months later. Let's listen to Dr. King uh, speaking after a huge march of hundreds and thousands of people uh, down Woodward Avenue in Detroit on June 23rd, the largest uh, civil rights demonstration in the history of the United States, which Dr. King acknowledges at the beginning of his speech. Let's listen in. And now, my friends... Let the trumpet sound, let the bells ring, let the drums roll, lay out the red carpet. Here he comes, America's beloved freedom fighter, Martin Luther King. to you this afternoon how 
thrilled I am. And I cannot begin to tell you the deep joy that comes to my heart as I participate with you in what I consider the largest and greatest demonstration for freedom ever held in the United States. assure you that what has been done here today will serve as a source of inspiration for all of the freedom-loving people of this nation. Dr. King, you have to stand above us. I think that is something else that must be said because it is a magnificent demonstration of discipline. With all of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people engaged in this demonstration today, there has not been one reported incident of violence. I think this is a magnificent demonstration of our commitment to nonviolence in this struggle for freedom all over the United States, and I want to commend the leadership of this community for making this great event possible and making such a great event possible through such disciplined channels. September the 22nd, 1862, to be exact, a great and noble American, Abraham Lincoln, signed an executive order, which was to take effect on January the 1st, 1863. This executive order was called the Emancipation Proclamation. And it served to free the Negro from the bondage of 
physical slavery. But 100 years later, the Negro in the United States of America still isn't free. But now, more than ever before, America is forced to grapple with this problem, for the shape of the world today does not afford us the luxury of an anemic democracy. The price that this nation must pay for the continued oppression and exploitation of the Negro or any other minority group is a price of its own destruction, for the hour is late. The clock of destiny is ticking out, and we must act now before it is too late. The events of Birmingham, Alabama, And the more than 60 communities that have started protest movements since Birmingham are indicative of the fact that the Negro is now determined to be free. For Birmingham tells us something in glaring terms. It says first that the Negro is no longer willing to accept racial segregation in any of its dimensions. We have come to see that segregation is not only sociologically untenable, it is not only politically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. <laughs> segregation is a cancer in the body politic which must be removed before our democratic health can be realized. Segregation is wrong because it is nothing but a new form of slavery covered up with certain niceties of complexity. Segregation is wrong because it is a system of adultery perpetuated by an illicit intercourse between injustice and immorality. And in Birmingham, Alabama, and all over the South and all over the nation, we are simply saying that we will no longer sell our birthright of freedom for a mess of segregated pottage. 
in a real sense, we are through with segregation now, henceforth, and forevermore. Something else. They reveal to us that the Negro has a new sense of dignity and a new sense of self-respect. For years. I think we will all agree that probably the most damaging effect of segregation been what it has done to the soul of the segregated as well as the segregator. It has given the segregator a false sense of in, uh, superiority, and it has left the segregated with a false sense of inferiority. So because of the legacy of slavery and segregation, many Negroes lost faith in themselves and many felt that they were inferior, but then something happened to the Negro. Circumstances made it possible and necessary for him to travel more. The coming of the automobile, the upheavals of two world wars, the Great Depression. And so his rural plantation background gradually gave way to urban industrial life. And even his economic life was rising through the growth of industry. The influence of organized labor expanded educational opportunities. And even his cultural life was rising through the steady decline of crippling illiteracy. And all of these forces conjoined to cause the Negro to take a new look at himself. Negro masses. Negro masses all over began to reevaluate themselves. The Negro came to feel that he was somebody. His religion revealed to him. His religion revealed to him that God loves all of his children and that all men are made in his image and that figuratively speaking, every man from a base black to a treble white is significant on God's keyboard. Consciously crowd with eloquent poet, fleecy locks and black complexion, 
cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. Were I so tall as to reach the pole, or to grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. But these events that are taking place in our nation tell us something else. They tell us that the Negro and his allies in the white community now recognize the urgency of the moment. I know we have heard a lot of cries saying, slow up and cool off. We still hear these cries. They are telling us over and over again that you're pushing things too fast, and so they're saying, cool off. Well, the only answer that we can give to that is that we've cooled off all too long, and that is the danger. There's always the danger if you cool off too much that you will end up in a deep freeze. Well, they're saying you need to put on brakes. The only answer that we can give to that that the motor's now cranked up and we're moving up the highway of freedom toward the city of equality. And we can't afford to stop now because our nation has a date with destiny. We must keep moving. Then that is another cry. They say, why don't you do it in a gradual manner? Well, gradualism is little more than escapism and do-nothingism, which ends up in standstillism. We know that our brothers and sisters in Africa and in Asia are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence. And in some communities, we are still moving at halt and burger pace toward the gaining of a hamburger and a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. So we must say now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to transform this tending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our nation. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of racial justice. Now is the time to get rid of segregation and discrimination. Now is the time.
So this social revolution taking place can be summarized in three little words. They are not big words. One does not need an extensive vocabulary to understand them. They are the words all here now. We want all of our rights. We want them here and we want them now. This is the moment. that we must see about this struggle is that by and large it has been a nonviolent struggle. Let nobody make you feel that those who are engaged or who are engaging in the demonstrations in communities all across the South are resorting to violence. These are few in number. We've come to see the power of nonviolence. We've come to see that this method is not a weak method. For it's the strong man who can stand up amid opposition, who can stand up amid violence being inflicted upon him and not retaliate with violence. You see, this method has a way of disarming the opponent. It exposes his moral defenses. It weakens his morale, and at the same time, it works on his conscience. And he just doesn't know what to do. If he doesn't beat you, wonderful. If he beats you, you develop the quiet courage of accepting blows without retaliating. If he doesn't put you in jail, wonderful. Nobody with any sense likes to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail, you go in that jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. tries to kill you, you develop the inner conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. <laughs> this method has wrought wonders. It's a result of the nonviolent freedom ride movement. Segregation in public transportation has almost passed away absolutely in the South. As a result of the sit-in movement at lunch counters, more than 285 cities have now integrated their lunch counters in the South. I say to you, there's power in this method. I think by following this approach, it will also help us to go into the new age that is emerging 
with the right attitude. The nonviolence not only calls upon its adherents to avoid external physical violence, but it calls upon them to avoid internal violence of spirit. It calls on them to engage in that something called love. And I know it is difficult sometimes. When I say love at this point, I'm not talking about an affectionate emotion. It's nonsense to urge people, oppressed people, to love their oppressors in an affectionate sense. I'm talking about something much deeper. I'm talking about a sort of understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. We are coming to see now, the psychiatrists are saying to us, that many of the strange things that happen in the subconscious, many of the inner conflicts are rooted in hate. And so they are saying, love a perish. But Jesus told us this long time ago, and I can still hear that voice crying through the vista of time, saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And that is still the voice saying to every potential Peter, put up your sword. History is replete with the bleached bones of nations. History is cluttered with the wreckage of communities that failed to follow this command. And isn't it marvelous to have a method of struggle where it is possible to stand up against an unjust system Fight it with all of your might, never accept it, and yet not stoop to violence and hatred in the process. This is what we have. Now that is a magnificent new militancy within the Negro community all across this nation. And I welcome this as a marvelous development. The Negro over America is saying he's determined to be free, and he is militant enough to stand up. But this new militancy must not lead us to the position of distrusting every white person who lives in the United States. There are some white people in this country who are as determined to see the Negro free as we are to be free. This new militancy must be kept within understanding boundaries. And then another thing I can understand, we've been pushed around so long. We've been the victims of lynching mobs so long. We've been the victims of economic injustice so long, still the last tide in the first fight all over this nation. And I know the temptation. I can understand from a psychological point of view why some caught up in the clutches of the injustices surrounding them almost respond with bitterness and come to the conclusion that the problem can't be solved within. And they talk about getting away from it in terms of racial separation. 
But even though I can understand it psychologically, I must say to you this afternoon that this isn't a way. Black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. No, I hope you will allow me to say to you this afternoon that God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race. And I believe that with this philosophy and this determined struggle, we will be able to go on in the days ahead transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. As I move toward my conclusion, you are asking, I'm sure, what can we do here in Detroit to help in the struggle in the South? Well, there are several things that you can do. One of them you've done already. And I hope you will do it in even greater dimensions before we leave this meeting. Now the second thing that you can do to help us down in Alabama and Mississippi and all over the South is to work with determination to get rid of any segregation and discrimination in Detroit. Realizing that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we've got to come to see that the problem of racial injustice is a national problem. No community in this country can boast of clean hands in the area of brotherhood. Now in the North is different in that it doesn't have the legal sanction that it has in the South but it has its subtle and hidden form. And it exists in three areas. In the area of employment discrimination, in the area of housing discrimination, and in the area of de facto segregation in the public schools. And we must come to see that de facto segregation in the North is just as injurious of the actual, as the actual segregation in the South. So if you want to help us in Alabama and Mississippi and over the South, do all that you can to get rid of the problem here. And then we also need your support in order to get the civil rights bill that the President is offering passed. And that's a reality. Let's not fool ourselves. This bill isn't going to get through if we don't put some work in it and some determined pressure. And this is why I've said that in order to get this bill through, we've got to rouse the conscience of the nation, and we ought to march to Washington more than 100,000 in order to save. In order to save it, we are determined. And in order to engage in a nonviolent protest to keep this issue before the conscience of the nation, and if we will do this, we will be able to bring that new day of freedom into being. If we will do this, 
we will be able to make the American dream a reality. And I do not want to give you the impression that it's going to be easy. There can be no great social gain without individual pain. Before the victory for brotherhood is won, some will have to get scarred up a bit. Before the victory is won, some more will be thrown into jail. Before the victory is won, some, like Medgar Evers, may have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children and their white brothers from an eternal psychological death, then nothing can be more redemptive. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names. But we must go on with the determination and with the faith that this problem can be solved. And so I go back to the South not in despair. I go back to the South not with a feeling that we are caught in a dark dungeon that will never lead to a way out. I go back believing that the new day is coming. And so this afternoon I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day, right down in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to live together as brothers. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day little white children and little Negro children will be able to join hands as brothers and sisters. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day, men will no longer burn down houses in the church of God simply because people want to be free. I have a dream this afternoon that there will be a day that we will, not long, we will no longer face the atrocities that Emmett Till had to face or Medgar Evers had to face, but that all men can live with dignity. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children and my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon, and one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them, and they will be able to get a job. Yes, I have a dream this afternoon. One day in this land, the words of Amos will become real. And justice will roll down like waters, and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream this evening that one day, we will recognize the words of Jefferson that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have a dream this afternoon. I have a dream that one day 
Every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day with this faith. I will go out and carve a tunnel of hope through the mountain of despair with this faith. I will go out with you and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows with this faith. We will be able to achieve this new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing with the Negroes in the spiritual of all, free at last, free at last. Thank God Welcome back. That was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking in the city of Detroit on uh, June 23rd, uh, 1963, uh, during the conclusion of the Detroit Walk Freedom. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people who came out uh, for that mass demonstration led by Dr. King, Reverend C.L. Franklin, uh, James Carrillo, Walter Ruther was there, McFall, so many others. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, January 14th, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we're commemorating uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. weekend uh, here in the city of Detroit. It's taking place all over the country. Monday, uh, we have the 20th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. rally in March beginning at noon at the St. Matthew St. Joseph Church at 8850 Woodward Avenue in the North End District uh, of Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
the music of the staple singers track entitled Freedom Highway. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 14th, uh, 2023. This is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend. Uh, Monday is a federally designated holiday in the United States in tribute uh, to uh, the martyred uh, civil rights and human rights and anti-war leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who was born on January 15th. Uh, 1929 and was martyred on April 4th of 1968. We're going to move uh, to the city of Chicago some three years after the previous speech uh, we looked into that was delivered in the city of Detroit. Uh, During uh, 1966, Dr. King uh, sought to move uh, the focus of the civil rights movement from the rural south to the urban north. He moved to Chicago in January of 1966 in a very underdeveloped and rundown area on the city's west side. And, um, of course, uh, over a matter of five months working with the Chicago Freedom Movement, uh, they were becoming an irritant uh, to uh, the city administration under the then mayor, uh, Richard Daly, of Chicago. And, uh, of course, um, on July 10th, uh, there was a mass rally held at Soldier Field where a series of demands were put forward uh, by the Chicago Freedom Movement uh, to the city of Chicago, and um, the city did not uh, respond favorably to those demands, uh, favorably to the presence of Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference staff that was in Chicago. And then, of course, the uh, following day, July 12th uh, erupted a rebellion in Chicago that lasted four days that required the intervention of the Illinois National Guard, uh, the state police, as well as uh, thousands of Chicago police officers. Let's go back uh, to a news report uh, that was delivered um, during that time period in the midst of the Chicago rebellion of 1966. Let's listen in. This is Mike Wallace in New York. In our studios in Chicago is Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, I understand that you have just reached agreement with Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago. Does that mean that the threat of violence tonight in Chicago is considerably diminished in your estimation? Well, I certainly hope so, and in a sense, I feel that the threat of violence tonight is diminished a great deal as a result of the agreement. I don't want to give the impression uh, that the agreement reached this afternoon will in any way solve the ultimate problems which we face in Chicago, uh, but I do think they will do a great deal to ease tensions tonight. We'll have an opportunity to talk to you at some length later in this broadcast, Dr. King. First, for an on-the-spot report direct from a National Guard command post in Chicago, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. This is Bill Plant at the Northwest Armory in Chicago. Despite that agreement between Mayor Daley and Dr. Martin Luther King, 3,000 Illinois National Guard troops are deployed tonight in a four-square-mile area of Chicago's near southwest side where shooting and vandalism and rioting have occurred for the past three nights. The troops are commanded by Major General Francis Kane, commander of the Guard. This is his command post. Thus far, this evening has been relatively quiet. A situation map pinpoints the trouble spots of previous nights. Additional troops are standing by, ready to serve as security guards in the event that prisoners are taken tonight. 
Chicago Police Superintendent Orlando Wilson said today that he had advised the mayor to call out the Illinois National Guard because he felt that the situation here was beyond the capacity of civil authority. The guardsmen are armed with pistols, rifles, grenades, machine guns, bayonets, and they will use tear gas, their commander says, if it is necessary. They are now patrolling the area. Two persons are dead in the wake of the rioting. There is heavy property damage. There was much looting and vandalism. It all began with a minor incident, and it grew steadily worse. This is the story of the Chicago riots. CBS News presents a special report. The Chicago Riots. Here is CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. Chicago is the second city of this nation. Tonight, it is the nation's number one battleground embroiled in racial crisis. It is a proud and prosperous city, home of the meat packer, the nation's rail hub, merchant to the Middle West. Luxury skyscrapers attest to its affluence. Yacht clubs dot its lake shores. Gracious suburbs lie around its central core. But in that central core are the Negro ghettos, where the turmoil of the last three nights was spawned. Almost one of every three persons in Chicago's three and a half million is a Negro. Citywide, unemployment among those Negroes is three times that of whites. And among teenagers, the disparity is even greater. Eight out of ten Negro children go to segregated schools. The annual income of the average Negro family in Chicago is 40% lower than the average white families. Into that environment last Sunday came Dr. Martin Luther King, moving the Negro Revolution from south to north. Last Sunday, Dr. King addressed a civil rights rally, an anti-poverty rally at Chicago's Soldier Field. He outlined 35 demands for equal rights, and he insisted that nonviolence was the only way to achieve them. After speaking, Dr. King led his followers on a three-mile march to City Hall to post a list of those demands to make Chicago, in his words, a free and open city. Those demands, among other things, called for open housing, more Negro employment, and negotiations by the city with so-called welfare unions organized by the civil rights movement. And then at City Hall, as King used adhesive tape to post the demands, the marchers crowded round him. King took the dramatic action just a day before meeting with Chicago's Mayor Richard Daley on the problems of the Chicago Negro. Afterwards, they held separate news conferences and expressed sharply differing points of view. Resolved. They have to be resolved. They can't just be resolved overnight. No reasonable person thinks they can, and no reasonable person expects they can. But I know if people sit down and exchange what thoughts they are, and also with the problem, give some of the ways and means of solving the problem. It's easy to keep saying, certainly we have slums. You have slums in Atlanta, you have slums in New York, you have slums in every city of the United States, and the people of Chicago certainly are not proud of the slums. I'm not proud of the slums. I would hope that tomorrow every slum uh, building in Chicago would be demolished and we'd have a decent home and a decent apartment for every family. This is the aim of the present administration, and this is our program, and this is our objective, and we're going to go through with it, and we're trying to go through with it. The mayor said to us that uh, things were already going on, that they were seeking to do certain things on the question of slums and on uh, the various problems that we face in housing. Our contention was that while things were being done, they were merely bringing about surface changes and that the problem is so gigantic in extent 
that it demanded structural changes. It demanded an imaginative, bold program because the Negro community can no longer live with token changes. Dr. King and Mayor Daly achieved no meeting of the minds. Critics of both said that neither man was really listening to the other. Dr. King talked later of the methods the Negro community would use to secure what he called a free and open Chicago. He spoke of using the Negro vote, of boycotts, of sit-ins and picketing. And then, on the west side of Chicago, in 96-degree temperatures at 5 o'clock last Tuesday afternoon, some Negro children at the corner of Roosevelt Road and Throop Street opened a fire hydrant. Here was the shabby intersection where it all began. Chicago slum kids wanted some relief from the heat. So the residents did what residents of city slums do everywhere. They turned on a hydrant. But the police came and turned it off. They said they had to preserve the water pressure in case of fire. The Negro residents were not impressed. They turned another hydrant on. As fast as police went around turning hydrants off, the Negroes opened others. And they protested that once again the police were singling them out. The Negroes said the hydrants were being allowed to run open just a short distance away where Italian-Americans lived. The youngsters made the most of it as the street was turned into a kind of wading pool. These are young people who must find most of their pleasures in the street. Many of them are school dropouts. The juvenile delinquency rates in Chicago are highest in this area. 28 of every 100 children here are classified delinquent. When the police turned off the hydrants once again, this playful spirit that you see evaporated quickly. Rocks were thrown at police, and then the real trouble began. There was a chase down the street, and then arrests followed. This was just the beginning of a night of trouble and vandalism in which 24 people were to be picked up by the police. This episode of heat, water, and sudden temper was the start of an evening in which store windows in the neighborhood were broken and stores were looted, but the incidents were still relatively minor. The next morning, Mayor Daly held a news conference at which religious leaders were present, including Roman Catholic Archbishop John Cody. They spoke of the disturbances the night before, and both men portrayed the street episodes in very mild terms. I think that... Uh... We do not need to be too concerned about these occasional things, although they're certainly giving a bad image to our city. I would hope and pray that we would have the understanding that we're trying to bring to every section of our city. I don't think it was a riot. I think that it was, as other cities would describe such an event, a, a juvenile incident. But later that day, police again closed an open water hydrant, and this time the response in the Negro neighborhood was furious. There was more vandalism, there was looting, and crowds of Negroes surged into the streets. They were angry, and they were bent on destruction. 400 policemen moved into the area. They threatened to arrest anyone who didn't go home and stay there, and they made good their warning. A number of policemen were injured by flying bricks and rocks and bottles. The night brought intensified violence. Molotov cocktails were hurled into buildings and numerous fires were set. Firemen were stoned when they tried to put out the fires. In one block alone, four fires were burning at the same time. While buildings were gutted, dozens of stores were being looted. As police marched through the streets, there was firing by snipers. 
Police fired back and two residents were hit and wounded by stray bullets. Police arrested 20 Negro youths and seized dozens of others who were later released. And scores of people were injured in this second night of combat between Negroes and police. By Thursday, as local church leaders gathered at the Shiloh Baptist Church to see what they could do to help ease the situation, it was obvious that something more than juvenile incidents were involved. But Dr. King maintained that his nonviolent movement was not to blame. We are trying to conduct a nonviolent movement here in Chicago, and we are going on with that program, but we need support. There's no point in the power structure and anybody else saying that because we are peacefully going around trying to change conditions that we are the cause of the riots. That's dishonest. It is untrue. It is unfair to say it to the public because we have stood up for nonviolence with all of our hearts. And those who will make this peaceful revolution impossible will make a violent revolution inevitable. And we've got to get this over. I need help. I need some victories. I need some concessions to take back. Chester Robinson, who formed the West Side Organization, said the violence could be held down if the clergyman would help get the young people back inside their homes. This is why we have to get out into the streets, not in a march not as a protest, but as uh, men and women who are trying to solve problems. And if we can talk to some of these mothers, we can talk to some of these kids, talk to some of these uh, teenagers, we can get them inside. But if we don't, there's going to be more burning, there's going to be more uh, police brutality, and tonight, there might be some shooting on the part of the community people. And there was, in the most violent night of the week. CBS News correspondent John Lawrence reports. George, stay down. There might be something killing over here. Right. Stop calling me, sir. Hey, sir, just there was as much gunfire on the corner of Wood and Lake last night as a Vietnam battlefield. A hundred police shot it out with snipers in an all-Negro apartment fight. The snipers fired from windows. The police blasted back from behind parked cars. I can't tell from there. On the second window down, on the left, sir. That's the son of a Right up there. Despite all the gunfire at Wood and Lake, not one person was wounded in the crowded buildings, and no police were hit. The snipers escaped in the maze of stairways and apartments. The bloodshed began later, a few miles away. This is Roosevelt Road, running through the heart of the Negro West Side, scene of most of the looting and shooting. It is a slum boulevard of white store owners and Negro customers, where the white man is not welcome after dark. Almost every store window was smashed for blocks. Almost everything was stolen or destroyed, and about a dozen shops were set ablaze. None of the fires along Roosevelt Road appeared to be serious, and few people were hurt. 
The biggest blow was to the store owners who lost tens of thousands of dollars in goods. A Molotov cocktail, a bottle, gasoline, and a rag for a wick makes an effective homemade firebomb. Many Molotov cocktails were thrown in the streets. A boy was seized as a suspect in the shooting of a policeman in a narrow alley off Roosevelt Road. The policeman, shot in the back while chasing a looter, survived his wound. The wounded patrolman was rushed to a hospital where he's recovering today. One of the suspects, deathly afraid, pleaded with the police not to shoot him. shot rang out and the police ducked for cover. This young man who was from Mississippi was one of two Negroes shot and killed last night. Police say he was looting a store on Roosevelt Road, chased down the same alley where the policeman was wounded and shot. Many were shot in the series of sporadic shootings between police and Negroes. Hundreds were arrested. After dawn, the prisoners were taken to criminal court for the massive task of booking them. They were charged with everything from disorderly conduct to treason. Treason in the case of 13 persons caught in an apartment. Police say they were talking about narcotics and planning widespread demolition and murder. There were reports that militant revolutionary groups were taking part in the rioting, especially the shooting at police. During the day, it was relatively quiet on the west side. There was scattered looting, but no serious outbreaks until mid-afternoon. A huge fire broke out in the riot area. A bottling company plant burst into flames and burned to the ground. And apparently it was set by arsonists. A co-owner of the company told CBS News correspondent Bruce Morton that he had been threatened, that he was warned as late as this morning when he was told his block-long building would be burned. And it was burned. When that wall collapsed, people were evacuated from their homes in the area. But apparently, despite all the flames along that block, no one was hurt. One Negro employee said all the Negroes in the buildings had been warned today to get out, for the building would be burned down. Then Illinois Governor Otto Kerner mobilized the National Guard. 3,000 men from the 33rd Infantry Division were called to their armories dressed in battle fatigues and armed. Just takes a second to slip it on. Tear gas, but just as a secondary precautionary measure. The division has just returned from two weeks of summer training, and its commanding general says his men are well prepared for riot control. But the guardsmen, who are civilians, seem upset, not welcoming the task of keeping order possibly shooting at people in their hometown. John Lawrence, CBS News, Chicago.
In the last three nights, then, in Chicago, there have been more than 300 arrests in the riot areas, dozens injured, two deaths. At this moment, 900 police are scattered through the Negro ghettos guarding against another violent night. As John Lawrence said, Governor Otto Kerner has ordered out 3,000 men of the Illinois National Guard. They're at the ready. And the citizens of Chicago wait anxiously and hopefully for a peaceful night ahead. The question many ask tonight is, why Chicago and why now? Many They're... of these teenagers are not vicious within themselves to the point of wanting to rise up against a whole city. Whenever they have difficulty, these groups constantly have their little wars among themselves. But it is not a normal procedure to expect young people to rise up against the whole city. It has to be some outside interference. Somebody who should not be doing it. Well, I think uh, you can't charge it directly to Martin Luther King, but surely some of the people that came in here and uh, have been talking for the last year in violence and showing pictures and instructing people how to conduct violence and they're on this staff they're responsible in a great measure for the instructions that have been given, the training of the youngsters, and this has been called to the attention I have repeatedly for the last year. The people who are in here training, actually training, and there's tapes on that, there's documentation, there's anything you want to show that certain elements that were in our city were in here for no other purpose but to bring disorder on the streets of Chicago. Someone has to train him. Who makes a Molotov cocktail? Don't you think a youngster makes that? Someone has to train him. Someone has to show him. Dr. Martin Luther King is in our Chicago studios. Dr. King, what about it? This charge that either you or your people are in some measure responsible for the violence that has broken out in Chicago the past three nights. Well, this is absolutely untrue and unfounded. It is a known fact all over the nation and over the world that I have taught consistently a doctrine of nonviolence. I have done it here in Chicago, and uh, all of the members of my staff are absolutely committed uh, to nonviolence, and I think it is totally unjust and even irresponsible to say that the individuals who are trying to bring about a peaceful re resolution of a very serious problem are responsible for riots when they develop. We do not advocate riots. We think they are socially destructive and that they are self-defeating. And I think we'll have to put the blame for this riot where it really is. And that is the failure of America and the failure of the city of Chicago to deliver its promises to the Negro people. And this riot uh, was born out of the wounds of frustration uh, despair, deep discontent, and uh, seething desperation on the part of those who were uh, misguidedly lashing out against uh, a society that they feel did a grave injustice and continues to do a grave injustice to them. Uh, Dr. King, Mayor Daly says that your people, in a sense, perhaps taught violence by displaying films of violence, films of what, for instance, to young people in Chicago? There have been instances when we showed films of Watts, but we did it for a very positive reason. We were seeking to show that Watts accomplished nothing but the death of 34 Negroes and the destruction of 
property and the destruction of a community where the people themselves live, where they need it uh, to hold it together. In other words, these films were shown to demonstrate the impracticality of violence and the fact that nothing could be more unwise than to follow the course of Watts. You were said just tonight to have reached an agreement with Mayor Daley in Chicago. Could you detail that agreement for us? Well, this agreement is uh, something that came about in an attempt to bring about some immediate relief. We realize that there are still long-term uh, things that must be done, and we will continue with that program to grapple with the serious problems of housing, of jobs, of education, welfare, and the other areas. But we felt that there were some things that the, the mayor could do today or tomorrow so that we could go back and say to the people that something will change and this may ease tensions. What are uh, those we, things, Dr. King, that are going to change today or tomorrow? Well, the mayor first agreed to provide uh, water sprinklers, so to speak, that could be placed on fire hydrants in uh, communities where excessive heat existed and where children were in dire need of some cool air and cool water so that this will be done immediately. In those areas, people live in very crowded housing conditions, and it's something like this is needed. The second thing is that uh, in the areas of the riding, there are few parks and recreational facilities and no swimming pools. So an agreement was made to build swimming pools immediately and recreational facilities in those areas and to make it possible for Negroes to use uh, parks in adjacent communities where they have been harassed and intimidated in the past. And the other thing is, the mayor agreed to appoint a committee of 100 citizens to review all police activities and make recommendations to him concerning ways and means to improve relationships uh, between policemen and uh, the citizens of the community, particularly the Negro community. Dr. King, we had a report this afternoon from uh, Washington correspondent Daniel Shore of CBS News the fact that these Chicago riots were sparked, at least in part, perhaps in large measure, by an organized guerrilla action by armed Negro extremists. Well, I don't know the details of uh, those who may be behind the riots. I mean, I don't know the details of forces that may have uh, sought to fan the flames and the riots. Uh, there may be groups that perpetuated it once it got started. It got started spontaneously. Now, after that, there may have been groups that uh, wanted to see violence and encouraged it. It is no secret that in uh, many of the ghettos of our country, we've read about this in magazines and other places, uh, there are groups strongly advocating violence and underground groups seeking to carry it out. Uh, and I think it is true that this may exist to some degree, but I have no information on that, and I certainly couldn't say that that is the case. Floyd McKissick, the National Director of Corps, told me this afternoon that more and more Negroes across the country are buying more and more guns, Dr. King. Here again, this may be true. I know that uh, there is a mood in some segments of the Negro community uh, that is so impatient that uh, violence is becoming a part of their response. I think this is very unfortunate because I think violence creates many more social problems 
then it's solved. But I do think that it is necessary for our nation to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the conditions of injustice, of economic deprivation, of depressing housing conditions, inadequate education, and all of these things which breed violence. For after all, the Negro is the victim of broken promises, of deferred dreams, and there's still a tragic gulf between promise and fulfillment. Thank you very much, Dr. King, in our Chicago studios. Roger Wilkins, director of the Community Relations Service of the Justice Department and a nephew of Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, was dispatched to Chicago early this evening to keep President Johnson and the Justice Department abreast of developments there in that city. For a progress report on what has transpired in Chicago while we have been on the air, CBS News correspondent Bill Plant. Reports of scattered incidents are beginning to come in. They are officially classified as minor, rock-throwing, a group of children breaking a window, grabbing whatever they can hold and running with it, and some small crowds dispersed. And 3,000 National Guardsmen are patrolling. Josh Darza has that story. The first National Guard troops took to the streets just before 8 p.m. this evening. This initial unit was the 1st Battalion of the 3rd Brigade of the Illinois National Guard. These troops were armed with rifles, bayonets, hand grenades, BARs, machine guns, and every type of device used to quell disturbances. The Commandant of the, sec of the 3rd Brigade, Colonel Curtis Milan, a veteran of the fighting of Normandy in the Battle of the Bull, says the National Guard is prepared even for door-to-door -door combat. It promised to be a long night on the west side of Chicago. The agreement reached between Mayor Richard Daley and Dr. Martin Luther King calls for the addition of sprinkler units to the fire hydrants in the city of Chicago, federal funds for pools, and a citizens' committee to discuss police problems. These will undoubtedly help, officials say, to alleviate the situation here. But whatever the future is to be in race relations, the city has gone to great lengths to ward off just such happenings as have occurred the past three nights. And those who know such conditions say that unless the conditions are wiped out, it could happen again. This is Bill Plant, CBS News at the Northwest Armory, Chicago. And so Chicago moves into another tense and difficult summer night. But not just Chicago. Well, the fact is that the traditional Negro leadership, the men of CORE and SCLC, of SNCC and the NAACP, these men confess they are not sure they can control the bitterness and the frustration rising now among Negroes in 40 cities of the North. Washington and Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, Newark, Cleveland, St. Louis, Oakland, and Los Angeles. In all these cities, too, the fuse is lit. There is no intent here to cry danger where there is none. Rather, there is the need to tell America again what frustration, bitterness, and envy lie not very deep beneath the surface of this affluent society. This is Mike Wallace. Good night. This has been a special report from CBS News. Well, that was a report from July 1966 in Chicago with the intervention of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, during uh, the Chicago Freedom Movement, during the rebellions that uh, summer in Chicago, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, this weekend, um, we're commemorating the 94th uh, birthday of uh, the martyr uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. 
and there will be uh, events uh, in his honor uh, here in the city of Detroit. Uh, we talked about the uh, 20th annual Detroit MLK Day rally in March, beginning at noon at 8850 Woodward Avenue, uh, the St. Matthew St. Joseph's Episcopal Church, starting at noon. And, uh, of course, uh, there are other events uh, taking place in other cities. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding comments.
That's going to conclude our program for today. We'll close out with the music of John O'Train from the album entitled Africa Bass. This is Abayomi and Zika signing off and have a beautiful week. <laughs>